word of comfort that Isaiah 40 is giving to us. Now, many of those themes that we hear in Isaiah 40, 12 to 26, we're going to hear again in Job chapter 38, 1 to 7, just as we hear about the power of God. And then finally, in closing, uh, Sharon will read for us Isaiah 57, 15, which I think pulls together these themes of both the greatness of God's power and also how he comes to those who are weak and lowly. So let me uh, pray briefly for us just for the Uh, for God's power to come through the reading and preaching of his word, and then I'll invite our readers to come forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, Lord, for not remaining silent, but for revealing yourself to us. And so, God, I pray that as your word is read right now and as I proclaim your word, uh, would you help each of us to see you rightly and see you clearly, that we might be transformed. God, I pray that you'll especially help me to just accurately preach your word. Help me not to represent you falsely, uh, but to preach with both accuracy and with power as I proclaim your word. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 40, 12 through 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust on the earth in a measure? and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor would its beast be enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold. And cast for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He, he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness scarcely are they planted scarcely sown scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, 
and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Job 38, 1-7 Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Oh, who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. As we continue on in Isaiah chapter 40 this week, we are continuing on in this theme that was launched in verse 1 of chapter 40, where it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Last week when we began this chapter, we heard about this passage that expresses God's very heart. It expresses that judgment and wrath are not what God ultimately desires, although he will perform such actions when when required, but rather nearness, being known, and gentleness with the weak is God's deepest heart. Now, Coming out of that declaration, Isaiah term, turns on a dime to proclaim the greatness of God. You can read for yourselves the shift that happens between verses 11 and 12. So Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So this expression of God's gentleness. And then read verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure, and weigh the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. And so Isaiah shifts immediately from this message of God's gentleness to this message of God's greatness and power. Isn't it glorious to have a shepherd who loves us and carries us, who is also the supreme power in existence? Could there be anything more comforting than this glorious message? A picture Someone who feels threatened by some group of people at school only to have their six foot eight brother walk up behind them who's 300 pounds of muscle and immediately all the people causing trouble just walk away. That's what this God is to us. Why should we ever feel unsafe or threatened when He is around? He is an infinitely strong protector of us who are weak. God himself is our shepherd. He is our friend. He is the one who carries us, and he is also more powerful than we could ever fathom. Yet that isn't the the main point of our text this morning, as glorious as that is. I just wanted to lay that as a foundation because it's important to keep that reality in mind as we move forward in the chapter this morning. 
The words that we have here continue in this theme of God offering us gentle comfort and care. Even though many of these words declare the greatness of God, the power of God, this is all said with an eye to one end in particular, to encourage your hearts, to strengthen you who are weak. And so what is it that God has for us this morning? What are his words of comfort to people such as us? Well, before I go into his words of comfort, I want us to recognize the obvious, and that is that the only people who really need comfort are people who are in some kind of distress. You would think it was very odd indeed if I told you that today, this afternoon, I was going to go over and comfort a friend, and you said, oh, well, what happened that he needs comfort? And I said, oh, well, he just got promoted in his job, and his kid just graduated from college. You would scratch your head and say, well, why are you going to comfort him? It sounds like he's already doing pretty well. Comfort is something that is needed by those who are weak, by those who are in distress, by those who are troubled in some way. And perhaps you are here this morning and you are feeling yourself in need of comfort. You are feeling yourself in some kind of distress and some kind of trouble and you are already very aware of how much you need the Lord on your side, how much you need God's help. Perhaps it's just in an internal, emotional way that you're so troubled in your spirit that you know you need God to help your spirit. Or perhaps it is in some more external way. You are sick. You are hurt. You have lost a lot of money. And so again, you are aware of your weakness and your need for God's help. If that's you this morning, then know again that this message of comfort is for you in particular. But Perhaps you're also here this morning and you don't feel in need of God's help. You are not sensing your distress. Well, beloved, if that's the case, let me just encourage you right now to consider your own weakness and your own frailty. Jesus himself says that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick in other words, it should be our universal human experience to realize that we are in desperate need of help, even in our highest moments, even when everything seems to be going well. We should still realize how fragile all of those things are, how easily they are taken away by just a word from God's mouth. When Paul describes Christians as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, in 2 Corinthians 6.10, I believe he says this because the Christian experience is always one of sorrow. It's always one of sorrow because we indeed always realize how corrupt human nature is. We always realize how we do not honor God as we should, how others around us do not honor God as they should. And so we are always troubled and aware of our own weakness. We are always sorrowful. And yet, as Paul also says, we are also always rejoicing. We're always rejoicing because we know what God has done and what God can do to bring salvation to the earth. And so our feeling, even though we are sorrowful, does not end in sorrow, but carries on forward to rejoicing. And so I just invite you to enter now into that place of acknowledging your weakness, acknowledging your sin, acknowledge how messed up the world is around us. Again, even if you had a great week, you feel like everything is going right, 
Beloved, know that you are a sick person in need of a physician. And these words of comfort are to you. These words of comfort are to all mankind because there is no man who is strong enough to stand on his own. And so hear these words of comfort that God has for us this morning. And so the theme that we pick up on when we come to verse 12 and these glorious statements of God's power is this theme of comfort for a weak and sorrowful people. Isaiah is speaking these words prophetically to a people of future generations. God has shown Isaiah that the kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem will not stand forever. We ourselves saw in Isaiah chapter 39 how Isaiah gave the prophecy to Hezekiah that one day the Babylonians would come and that the whole city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, that all of its treasures would be taken to Babylon, and that all of its people would be taken to Babylon as well. And so Isaiah, with God's inspiration, is here looking to that future day when God's people will be far away from their homes, basically as prisoners in Babylon. They have lost everything. They have been ripped from their families. They have been ripped from their homeland. And they are in a foreign land. They seem to live their whole lives under the judgment of God. The heart of these people is clearly expressed in verse 27. And that's actually where I'd like to start our exposition of this text this morning in Isaiah 40, verse 27. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. This is who God is addressing with these words of comfort. He is addressing those who feel like their way is hidden from the Lord, and their right is disregarded by their God. A people who feel like God does not see them. A people who feel like God does not stand up for them. Beloved, have you ever felt like such a person? The word hidden in verse 27 is in the perfect tense. It's a settled reality. They're saying of God that he's simply blind to what is happening on the earth. He cannot see what is going on. And that verb disregarded in 27 is in the imperfect tense. It's an ongoing experience. They say that God is not presently listening to my call. The first is a theological statement about who God is. The second is a personal statement about what they feel. Beloved, I think that all of us go through seasons sometimes where we feel precisely that way. Do you ever feel like your prayers are not being answered? Do you ever feel like God has laid upon your shoulders a burden that is greater than what you can bear? Do you feel like things maybe are happening in your life that would never happen if God truly loved you, if you were truly his child, if God truly was there? Again, beloved, it is good to be honest before the Lord in these moments. I myself often can put myself in the shoes of these people in verse 27 who says that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. 
I feel that God has given me this burden in my heart to build a church, to build a gospel movement that's just as it was spoken of in the New Testament. To see thousands coming to the Lord, to see the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh. And yet, when I look around me today, I see so few people coming to salvation. I don't see manifestations of the Spirit poured out on the church. I don't see a rising eagerness to sell all that we have and to have all things in common, just like was spoken of in Acts chapter 2. I pray to God year after year, Lord, make this happen. And yet my prayers go unanswered. And so I say, God, where are you? I say, does does the same God that wrote this book still exist? Is he still alive in the world today? And in my own personal life, I so often pray that God would give me a greater heart of love for others, and yet I still find myself so introverted and self-seeking. I pray that God would give me gifts of prophecy and of healing, and yet to this day, not one word of prophecy come from the Lord. Sometimes it's easy for me to wonder, God, are you actually there? Can I actually trust in you to do what this word describes? And so I can understand this sentiment of verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. And I'm sure that many of you have probably felt disregarded by the Lord in even deeper and more profound ways than I have. You've experienced suffering that I can only imagine. And so you know what is expressed in in verse 27. This people who are in exile, who feel like they're under the judgment of God, who feels like God does not hear them. And again, what does God say to people in such a situation? Many of you may be surprised to see that he doesn't speak words of judgment. God doesn't say, how dare you accuse me of not listening to you? How could you think like that? That's not God's response. God's most immediate response in verses 28 to 31, we'll jump down to 29, it says, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In other words, God's most immediate word to those who doubt his goodness, who doubt that God can answer them, is that God will strengthen you. He is there for you. He will sustain you. This is God's word. In verse 31, it gives us the main exhortation of these verses. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. In other words, God's message to us when we are weak, when we are doubting God's goodness, is not Again, a word of judgment. It's not just get over it. No, his word is just wait on me. Don't give up. Hold fast to the hope that you have in me. God really is there. Don't stop believing. Wait for the Lord. That is his word of exhortation to us. And then the message added to that, if we simply wait, if we simply believe, if we simply say, God, I'm going to hold on, and I'm going to believe that you really are there, then God says that he will come and lift you up as on eagle's wings. 
And so to me, in my heart, God says, don't give up hoping for a New Testament church. Don't give up hoping for a work like you see in the book of Acts. Keep waiting for the Lord. Don't stop believing. Maybe some of you have battled for years and you don't know when you're going to have victory. Just wait for the Lord. Maybe some of you have a family member that you've been praying for their salvation year after year and nothing seems to be happening. The answer is wait for the Lord. Maybe you've experienced endless sickness and injury and problem after problem. The answer is wait on the Lord. Don't give up hoping. Don't start doubting. Just hold on to God. And when you do that, we have this word of comfort that's given in verses 29 and 30 in the second half of 31. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall be faint and weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Mount up with wings like eagles. Run and not be weary. Walk and not be faint. Beloved, isn't that what each of us desires? Isn't that what each of us most needs? Again, we are a weak people. We are a frail people. And so this promise of strength for day after day after day is a promise for each one of us. It promises strength in our hour of need. And yet, even as we see this glorious promise, there is an all-important question behind these words of encouragement. Sometimes our problems can seem so overwhelming. Our hopes can seem so far-fetched. Our prayers can seem so unanswered that we really wonder, is God big enough to help us with what I am dealing with? In other words, our question is, okay, God, you say you will give me strength, but how much strength can you really give me? You say that you'll carry me, but how long can you really carry me? We say, you know, God, my problems are really big. And I'm just not sure you're big enough to handle all of them. And that is why God gave us these glorious verses of 12 to 26. So that when he comes to the words of encouragement in 27 to 31, these people have in their minds, they know the God who is promising help. The God who is promising strength. And so turn back now to verse 12, and we're going to look at this God who says that he will strengthen us and help us. Now, these verses are structured as two series of questions and responses. The questions are all just rhetorical questions, questions that say, I think you already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyways. And then verses 25 and 26 are kind of like the grand finale to everything that God has just said. In verse 12, we see that God says that he is the God of all power. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? In other words, for God, the mountains are as something that can simply be lifted up like a small weight and put on the scales and measured, just like any small thing that you might buy in a market. Who measures the waters in the hollow of his hand? All of the oceans and lakes and rivers of the earth can fit 
in the very hollow of his hand. He has all power in heaven and on earth. He has marked off the heavens with a span. Even the endless expanses of space are not beyond him. He is the God of all power. Not only is he the God of all power, he's also the God of all wisdom. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Beloved, all of human knowledge, even the full accumulation of it, would amount to only the tiniest fraction of the knowledge of God. God not only knows all the facts of the universe, all the truth of the universe, he even knows what it is like to be every person in the universe. The New Testament tells us that even the hairs on our head are numbered. Beloved, there is no one who can give God counsel. There is no one who can teach God a single thing. He has perfect wisdom and perfect understanding. In verses 15 to 17, we see the immensity of God. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And so God says the greatest thing that you can imagine on the earth, and for many of us even today, the greatest thing that we can imagine is the great empires of the earth. And God says that even these, the nations of the earth, are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. In other words, they are not even worth being accounted by God. For any of you that think that there's great hope lies in the government of the United States of America or there's great hope that lies in any other nation on earth, read this verse and understand that America is as dust on the scales compared to the God of the universe. He takes no account of it. When he says Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, Lebanon was known as the greatest forest that Israel could possibly see. And so he's saying that even if all the forests of Lebanon were burned, they could not light the fireplace of God. You can just imagine wherever your mind envisions the biggest forest as being. I think of the whole state of Maine. Even if the whole state of Maine were to go up in flames, it would not suffice as fuel for God nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Everything on earth, if you add it all together, cannot compare to the majesty, to the grandiosity, to the immensity of God. Beloved, this is who God is. Now immediately after this, Isaiah seeks to further enlighten us as to who God is by way of contrast. What does he contrast with God? He contrasts God with a lifeless idol. And so look at verses 18 to 20. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it. 
And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And then in contrast to that, we read verses 21 to 23. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. In other words, beloved, consider every other God, every other thing you could worship on the face of the earth. And guess what? It is lifeless in comparison. There is a living God who, as this text says, even now sits above the circle of the earth. He is enthroned in the heavens and he is alive and he can work whatever he wills on all the earth. He is not a dead and lifeless idol. He is living and active. And he is powerful to accomplish all of his purposes. This is the God who promises to help us. When we come to verses 22 and 23, we especially see the word of the sovereignty of God. That he sits above the circle of the earth, the inhabitants are like grasshoppers, he brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Again, there is nothing in all the earth that can thwart the purposes of God. Even the most powerful nations, the most powerful rulers, Those who seem most entrenched are as nothing before the God of the universe. Verse 24 reminds us that even those things that seem most fixed are just like a parting breath as compared to the power of God. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. And then again, we have this grand conclusion in 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Beloved, there is no one and nothing that could possibly compare to God. He is one of a kind. He is unique in all of existence. He is the only God. And then verse 26 says this to show us the real greatness of God's power reminds us of the stars and the sun and the moon. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created all of these. It says that he even calls the stars by name and he keeps them all in place. Beloved, there were probably something like 5,000 stars visible in ancient Israel, but now we've come to know that there are over 10 billion trillion stars in all the universe and God knows them by name and keeps them in place. Beloved, this is the heart of God's response to the one who says, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. 
Beloved, if God can keep track of 10 billion trillion stars, he can keep track of you and your problems, and he can care for you and your problems. This is the God who strengthens you. This is why we wait upon the Lord. This is why we don't hope in anything else or anyone else. This is why we don't give up and simply go on a different path because no one else is like him. No one else is like our God. He alone can help us in every moment of need. And beloved, the most wondrous thing, I think, is that when we turn to the pages of the New Testament and we see what God has done in the death and resurrection of His Son, it has not diminished God's care for those who are faint and weary. It has only raised it up to another level. And so I would invite you now to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I just want us to look at a prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23. And I hope you can hear in this prayer the very same message of Isaiah chapter 40. In Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul is praying for the Christians in Ephesus. Why is he praying? He's praying because he believes in a God who is living, in a God who answers prayer. And then listen to what Paul prays for these saints in Ephesus. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know. Okay, now what is it that the apostle wants us to know? What is it that God wants us to know now that Christ has died and that he has risen from the dead? What is true for us? That you may know, number one, what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So that's the first two things. The first thing is he wants us to know the hope to which he has called us, the very hope of new creation, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, a wealth that could never be measured. The whole world is ours. But then I think most amazing of all, and certainly most amazing to the Apostle Paul, is the third thing that he prays for in this prayer. Verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe, okay? What is that immeasurable greatness? What is the power that God gives toward us who believe? I'll just keep reading. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, beloved, what power does God have in store for you if you will wait on the Lord, if you will trust in him? The very same power that raised Christ from the dead. 
The very same power that seated Christ on high in the heavenly places. The very same power that Christ is exercising in his rule over every nation and every authority as he puts all things under his feet. This is the power that is now at work in us, beloved. If we will simply wait on the Lord and trust in him. If we will simply not give up hope. And so, beloved, if you are here this morning and you are someone who is weary, you are someone who feels that your way is hidden from the Lord and your right has been disregarded by your God, consider Jesus Christ who died for you, who rose again from the dead, and wait on him and know that the same power that raises Christ from the dead is offered to you as you are willing to receive it as you are willing to hope in him. Ultimately, beloved, if you are in a place of weariness, if you are in a place of desperation, what this text teaches us, what Ephesians 1 is teaches us, what Ephesians 1 teaches us is that what we need to look to is not our problems. It's not how enormous they seem, how overwhelming they are. What we need to turn our eyes to is the God of the universe how powerful he is, what he is able to accomplish, how he can keep all the stars in their orbit and know them by name, how he knows every last hair on your head, how he loves you enough to send Christ to die for you and then fill you with the very power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. When you consider that God, when you consider that power, then all the problems that you may feel and that temptation that you feel to simply give up to change your goals, to say God isn't going to do this, I guess. All that fades away because you see just how good, just how powerful, just how perfect the God of all creation is. And so, beloved, we have gathered this morning to worship him, to fix our eyes on him, so that as we do behold him as he is, we may come to trust in him, to know that whatever our problems are, they are small. And that he is able and he is willing to help us in our time of need. Let me open us in prayer now. And then I just invite you to offer your prayers of confession and petition to God. Heavenly Father, we indeed worship you for your incomparable majesty and glory, Lord. We worship you because there truly is no one like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. God, would you forgive us for how often we doubt that reality? And Lord, would you help us to fix our eyes on you and to take heart? And would you renew our strength, Lord, just as you promise in your word?